of Romans chapter 3, if you will. I'm not going to preach the entire message today because we were a little rushed in the first service too. Those, those dates will be October 12th through the 16th. The 12th through the 16th is when that trip is, October 12th through the 16th. So, um, Okay, we're going to turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to, we'll, I'll preach right up to 1230 if that's okay. So 21 minutes here this morning. And then I will finish this message next Sunday. Um, this message is entitled Epic Fail. And it's not going to make a lot of sense until we get to the next Sunday. Um, but I want to go through, we, we start off in Romans 1 a week ago. And Wednesday night we went to Romans 2. And today we're in Romans 3, and I think there's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. So how about we, we actually make it through the end? What do you guys think about that? Wouldn't that be cool? We'll do the entire book of Romans. Now we're doing the entire book of Romans from a new covenant grace perspective. Now, the key is to this is that I'm not, I'm not adjusting Romans to fit that narrative. Paul wrote it from that perspective. He actually started out, if you go back in chapter 1, he actually started off verse 1, chapter 1, and uh, he actually said that he was making the official announcement of the goodness of God. He wrote to them, he said, grace be unto you. He wrote it as the apostle of grace to the Gentiles there in Rome. And this entire message in Romans is really about the finished work. We use the book of Romans sometimes in modern faith to beat people up a little bit and to, to introduce maybe what I would consider some mixture or some compromise to the message of the new covenant. And uh, as, we, as we actually break down and understand the context of what Paul's saying, you're going to find out that this does not contradict anything else in the New Testament. Romans is not like this one contradictory book that just makes everything else, you know, it's like to set the record straight or to or to balance or, or to whatever. Um, I said this in the first service, and I, I want to communicate to all of you today uh, that you have to be very careful with what you're hearing out there, your ears, because you're going to hear things like, uh, well, grace needs to be balanced with truth or with this or that. Um, the truth is, is that grace and truth are the same thing. Does that make sense? So you're not balancing, it's the same thing. There actually is no balance in the kingdom of God. It's because when you introduce balance, you introduce this idea of the scales of justice. And Jesus came to pay the price of the law. So when you look at heaven, and you look at God, and you look at everything he's done, and you look at everything that he thinks about us and believes about us, and has provided for us, it looks like this. And guess what? Nothing I can do or say can bring balance to that. So a lot of times we use terms like, well, does your pastor preach a balanced word? Not this one. I actually believe that all of the evidence is communicating the same message over and over and over again and beating us over the head in a good way, trying to remind us of what our original design and redeemed innocence is through Christ. And I really believe that if we get that straight in our minds and we find it all through the book of Romans, that we'll actually begin to walk in a place of great great freedom that allows us to soar and to be who God originally designed us and created to be. Look at your neighbor for a second and tell him, don't be a knockoff. Be the original design. Let's start in Romans 3, verse 3. What then if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
May it never be. Rather, let God be found true. Though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, as we explore this, we're going to learn for a moment that what you think or what your human experience is does not actually affect God's word. It doesn't change it. When we read this in the mirror in verse 3, it says, the question is, how does someone's failure to believe God affect what God believes? Can their unbelief cancel God's faith? Newsflash, what we believe about God does not define him. God's faith defines us. Our belief does not define him. You hear me? Verse 4, God's word is not under threat. If all of humanity fails, his truth remains intact. God's word is not subject to the telephone game. It remains intact. And it remains true, and it was true when he spoke it, and it's true today. Which means that this revelation that we have not heard throughout church history a ton... We hear it in the writings, but it had periods of time where there weren't a lot of very uh, prominent voices declaring God's grace and goodness in this fashion, unapologetically. But nevertheless, his truth stayed intact, waiting for somebody to pick it up and to become a lighthouse and a bullhorn of his goodness and his grace. And I thought about this. Um, it says, it, well, it says, it says, truth is defined in God. It is neither challenged nor vindicated by human experience. And contra contradiction does not intimidate or diminish the faith of God. Amen. You know that David, David, specifically David, his sins did not cancel God's promises. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, two of the things that God said was this. He said, but my mercy I will not take from him. And then he goes on to say, his house shall be made sure and his kingdom forever before me and his throne shall be set up forever. Now David did some things. Y'all know, right? Or, he, you know. He saw that sweet thing bathing over there. And he, it wasn't just good enough to just have her. He had to send her husband away to be killed. Come on. This is serious stuff here, people. Guess what? David's mess and mistake and sin did not cancel God's promises over his life. And it did not, his, the contradiction of the life he was living did not intimidate God's promise and word. His word was intact, waiting for David to come to a point where he would look himself in the mirror. The Bible says that he bathed and he changed his clothes. And there was this process that he went through where the child that, that she then conceived was, died. And, and, and it talks about the process he went through. But all God was waiting was for him to take on a new identity in his clothing. To wash himself of the shame of his mistake. And to go in and worship and realign his mind with the promises of God over his life. 
All God was waiting for was not David to realize how terrible he was or, or to, to take, well, maybe, you know, I know that he, he promised that I would be king and I know that he said he would give me a throne forever, but maybe he just meant over Sarasota. I said this in the first service. Uh, um, um, well, let me read the rest of this and I'll tell you this. Scripture records that God stands justified in his own word. It confirms that God's promise and purpose are not compromised through mankind's failure. Neither is God's reputation threatened by our behavior. I thought about this in the first service. I like to pay attention to pop culture. Um, sometimes my wife will go on my phone to Instagram and unfollow people that she doesn't seem fitting for my life. <laughs> but nevertheless, I just refollow them. And I have a couple of entertainment news sources. And the reason I do that is because I like to pay attention to what's happening out there. Because a lot of times what people like to do is, if you're a pastor, they think you're out of touch. Well, listen here, honey, child, this pastor is not out of touch, all right? I know about Haley Baldwin and Justin Bieber and about everyone thinking they got married and them coming out and say we didn't get married, but they do have a marriage certificate. And I know the beef between Cardi B and, uh, and Nicki Minaj. I know all about that, okay? I'm, I'm read up on it, all right? And I know that Jay-Z and Beyonce have a beef with Kanye. I know about that too, all right? So this past weekend, I need you to know this now. Your pastor knows what's going on, all right? Me and Jay-Z are like this. Um, he just doesn't know it. I tweet him all the time. So this past week, uh, Beyonce... And who's married to Jay-Z, for those of you who have no idea what these letters mean. Um, <laughs> they're, two, they're probably one of the biggest power couples in, in the world, definitely in the music industry. And, uh, and so Beyonce posts a picture on Instagram or wherever of her on, in a helicopter, this luxury helicopter, wearing a pair of shoes, um, you know, fashionable, cute shoes, uh, that are Yeezys. And if you don't know what Yeezys are, those are the shoes that Kanye West makes. I know, people are getting, making hundreds of million dollars of things called Yeezys. That sounds like something you do when you have a cold, you know what I mean? <laughs> but anyways, so she's got these pair of Yeezys on and she's all posing and picture and the whole deal. And she posted it and Kanye was, got all excited because Kanye thought that these shoes that Beyonce was wearing uh, were his shoes. And, and, and that maybe that their beef that they've had is over. Because for her to post a picture wearing one of his products, that's a big deal, you know, to promote somebody else's brand. Um, and so Kanye retweeted it and was like, oh yeah, something about them being fam, you know, like family and all that. Well, what poor little Kanye didn't know is that they were not his shoes, they were a $49, $99 knockoff. <laughs> that she bought online for somebody that ripped his shoe off, not the $850 versions of the actual Yeezys. And I know this sounds silly, but I, God teaches me things through these dumb little stories. And I got thinking about it. You know, um, sometimes based on what you think you've done to harm the reputation of your father or what you think you've done to contradict his promise and word for your life, sometimes we take what, what was supposed to be the original design and we settle for a generic version. We settle for a version of it that is not the original quality design. 
And so we scale it back, we tune it down. We, we hope it'll look something similar to what he promised. But because of what our behavior has exhibited, we assume that a portion of the promise has been forfeited. And then as age begins to hit us, we might have 10 big things or less, and then it goes to five. Then we hit 60 and we say, maybe if I can just get the top three down. And we hit 75 and we say, man, before I die, I want to get one of them done. But how many of you know that whether you believe it or not, his word and promise for your life is still there. And he never scales back or scales down what he has for your life based on your behavior. Your behavior does not intimidate the promise of God over your life. Your con- the contradiction of what you've done with your life does not somehow forfeit what he said he was going to do with you. What he's waiting is for your mind to be renewed and for you to understand that he is right there on the other side of the door waiting for you to walk through that promise, walk through that opportunity, step out in the substance of the faith of who Jesus is and what he said he done, he's done on the cross for you and to actually begin to live your life according to that, the original design, the real Yeezys, not the knockoff. Truth doesn't come by popular vote. It already is as true as it gets because God believes it, that it is from faith to faith, Paul wrote. Come on. And I love this story of David because he says, his, I'm, I'm not going to take my mercy from him. And I'm going to make sure that his kingdom will be forever before me and his throne shall be set up forever. Whew. Romans, uh, we're going to do a couple more verses and then we'll, we'll do the rest next week. Y'all getting something out of this? Amen. Lie to me, the rest of you. The rest of you need to lie to me and say yes, all right? That's the most inappropriate, worst-timed amen I've ever heard. All right. There should be a school for people like you who get amens in the wrong place. Appropriate times to say amen. We used to have this guy, remember, what was his name, Daniel? What was his name? Yeah. There's this guy who used to come to church. His name was Daniel. Of course, all the Daniels are crazy. And he used to come to church, and he would say amen, or he'd say thank God. Thank God at the wrong spots. It would be dead silent. It'd be one of those emotional moments, you know, where dad is painting the story and you've, you know, he's got everybody in the palm of his hands and everybody's listening on his word. And it's something, a sad part of the Bible, you know, and he'd be like, I mean, he'd be like, you know, and, and, you know, Paul was abandoned on the island and, and was beaten or, you know, he just, he'd just be like this. And, and then all of a sudden you hear Dana go, thank God. And this one was stoned to death. The rocks that they hurled at his face, they weren't pebbles. They were as big as a man's hand and as hard as they could throw them, smashing their facial structure. Thank God. (laughs) Send you to that school. You need to learn, all right? Verse 8. And why... Thank God. And why not say... As we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. This is the scary part of thinking you have somebody's uh, dirt in your hands. Because maybe some of that dirt is actually dirt that was already in your hands. Come on. And Paul, Paul was slandered. He was slandered and he was beaten and he was imprisoned. And the worst of the worst happened to Paul. Why do you think the enemy came against Paul so strongly? Because he was afraid of the message he had to bring. You want to play it safe? You want to never face trial or criticism or slander? That's the life you want to live? Don't preach this stuff. Don't preach this stuff. I don't want to get into detail, but I've experienced a little slander, a little rough stuff lately. And when we started weeding through it and really realizing that it was just the enemy and division and disunity and all that, the conclusion that I came to is this isn't a personal attack on me. It's the enemy's attack on the message. And you have to ask yourself, why is the enemy so scared? Because when you get this, and when your family gets it, and when your friends get it, and when your colleagues and people that work with you get it, he is scared to death of what you will do in building the kingdom of God when you get set free in this message. And he wants to stop it. Come on, he wants to stop it. He wants to silence it. It happened with Paul, and it's happening today. The mirror says this, because of my emphasis on God's grace, some people slanderously made the assumption and accused me that my teaching would give people a license to sin. Show, verse 8, right there. Let us do evil that good may come. I strongly condemn such foolish talk. So in the words of Paul, I would like to strongly condemn the foolish idea that the message of grace somehow condones or gives license for sin. What the message of grace gives you is the license to live your life free of the consciousness of sin. Do you hear me? That you don't wake up every morning with your mistakes and your sin rattling around your brain, preventing you from becoming who you are and who you were created to be and keeping you from, I'm telling you, grace is the license to keep you from dumbing down the promises of God over your life and tuning down what you believe you're capable of because of your past. Grace is the license for you to walk in freedom out of what has held you back and to tear down the strongholds, tear down the mountains, lift up the valleys, get rid of the obstacles. Grace is the message that will set you free from all of the pain and all of the regret and all of the shame and all of the destruction and death that sin has on your life, grace is what will set you free from that. Come on. That is the message that we believe. It is not that grace gives you a license to sin. It's grace that allows you to walk free out of sin so that you can finally become who God's created you and called you to be. Come on. You believe that? 
good. Verse 9. It's common knowledge that sin holds the, sw- holds the sway over both Jew and Greek alike. Verse 10. Scripture records that within the context of the law, no one succeeds to live a blameless life. As you actually begin to see the scripture references here, and we're going to get to verses 20 through 24, and then 27, 26 through 31 next Sunday. 20 through 24, 26 through 31 um, next Sunday. So, And that'll finish off uh, chapter 3. Um, but And this is uncovered a little bit more in there. But we actually begin to see this. He begins to build an argument. He's building this argument, Paul is, up to this, this triumphant conclusion. And the conclusion is this. It's the fact that there is indeed no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That the same people who fell short of the glory of God, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, are now justified through God's work. In other words, no matter if you are over here or you're over here, no matter if you've been kind of good or super good or super bad, that you are all together justified by faith through what he's done. And it says this, it says, if mankind was 100% represented in Adam, then we are equally 100% represented in Christ. So if Adam and Eve are the reason that we were separated ultimately from God 100%, then Jesus is the reason 100% while we are, while we are no longer separated. Amen. Come on, that's good news. What Adam did wrong, if we identify with that 100%, what Jesus did right, we also identify 100% with that. Isn't it amazing that as humanity that we can easily identify with somebody who did something wrong and messed some things up? We can easily, we can easily take a chunk out of that and say, well, that could have been me. 100%. But when Jesus comes and says, I have now 100% vindicated what mankind has done and paid the price so that you can be reinstated and reconnected and back in relationship with my father, we go, oh, I don't know if I can accept that 100%. But I love this. It says, scripture records that within the context of the law, no one succeeds to live a blameless life, which means this. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter how strong your willpower is, you will always disappoint in the context of the law. So next Sunday, because it's 1231, I'm one minute over. Next Sunday, we're going to learn why willpower is the enemy of what God wants you to live. And while he's not, he is not after a strong willpower, he's after your heart and love. Because willpower is the idea that you do something because you believe it's the right thing to do. Love is the idea that you do something because it's who you are. So next Sunday, we're going to finish off in verses 20 through 24 and 26 through 31. And let me read you just a couple things to just whet your appetite and then we'll get out of here. Can you tell I'm excited about this? I'm not. It's all a joke. Okay. Willpower exhausts. Love ignites. If choices could save us, we would be our own saviors. Come on. Willpower is the language of the law. Love is the language of grace. Come on. Willpower has, this is what, in Romans seven nineteen, Paul says this, the Greek of it, version of it says, he says, willpower has failed me. 
And he says, this is how embarrassing it is. The most diligent decision that I make to do good still disappoints. How many of you want to be free from trying to work up willpower? How many of you want to be free to live a life of love for our Father in heaven? Come on, does that sound good? All right, to be continued. There's no great conclusion here today. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger. We're going to finish it next Sunday. Listen, Wednesday night, before you leave, Wednesday night, we have between, I think, 12 and 14 people graduating from Harvest House. And so if you don't normally come on Wednesday night, we want to invite you because we are, want to celebrate and clap and get excited about these new beginnings in these lives of these men and women. And I think it may be more than 12 to 14. I think 12 to 14 have confirmed they'll be here. But I believe there's more than that that are actually graduating. So join us Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And then this message I will finish next Sunday. We love you. Thank you for giving towards the DR uh, trip. We love you. We appreciate you. Yes. Oh, yes. Do you guys remember Isabel and Ivan Allum? Yes. They were here. Ivan Allum passed away this past week from cancer. So Isabel is, if you know her or are friends with her on Facebook, send her a message just of love and support. Um, it's very tragic. They're an amazing couple. They've been pioneers in that area of Canada for the prophetic. Both carry the mantle of prophets. And he passed away. They believed until the last moment that he would be completely healed. There's a lot of questions, I'm sure, there. But it was a real beautiful picture of what it looked like to stand in faith. And so we honor them this morning as pioneers, as generals in the faith. We honor Isabel for her strength. And we just want to lift her up in your own personal time of prayer. Lift Isabel up. God, we lift her up right now as she is uh, experiencing the loneliness of not having him there. God experiencing the disappointment of, Lord, what she thought would be a miracle here on earth. And so God, we just ask that you lift them up, provide every need, encourage her, give her even new and greater passion and strength and revelation to travel this world with your message, the message of a father's heart for humanity. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone says, God bless you guys. See you Wednesday night.